welcome to the Be Glad Movement podcast. My name's Pollyanna and I'm on a mission to bring you as many stories as possible of good coming out of bad and reasons to be glad. This Saturday, Saturday the 20th of June, it's going to be World Refugee Day. In these unprecedented times of COVID-19, I think we're all feeling varying degrees of separation from our loved ones, but nothing quite compares to the type of story I'm so grateful to be able to share with you today. At just 12 years old, Galwali Pasale's mother told him and his brother to leave home for Europe and never return to war-torn Afghanistan. As a mother, I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like for her. Let's listen to Gowali's story right now. Hello. Hi, Paulina. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm excited because this is quite an unusual story. Well, I certainly haven't covered a, a story like yours uh, before on the Be Glad movement. Um, and I know it's going to be very emotive for lots of people, uh, especially the mothers in the world um, and people that have been parted from their families. So I'm going to um, step out of the way and let you take us back to when you were a young lad growing up in Afghanistan and what life was like before you you had to move. Sure. I think when I, when I wanted to talk to you, I thought it was quite difficult because it, it, I'm not very glad about what has happened to me, but then it's about, you know, we go through experiences in life, particularly negative experience, and what we make of that experience matters. And I think we all go through struggles and, and, and difficulties, but it's important for us to to bring ourselves together and to realize things happen for a reason and, and ultimately it's it's out of our control so it's not really i'm glad about it but it's it's more about okay it happened now let's make the most of whatever opportunities and whatever positivity we can take from that but anyway so oh, that's exactly what it's all about definitely yeah one, wonderful so when i was a child i was born into um, a, a very conservative family in eastern afghanistan and uh, my father was a doctor we had a comfortable life and um, from a very young age, I lived with my grandparents in the mountains, which was really wonderful. Uh, had a very nomadic life. Uh, we had sheep, and I was a shepherd. Was a skilled shepherd by the age of seven or so, and then um, started school. So uh, things was all right, like a normal, ordinary Afghan family in a conservative, traditional household. And uh, unfortunately, things just um, became really bad when the war started. So the U.S.-led invasion with uh, 48 other countries, and then my home in my country became a war zone. A lot of people lost their lives. There's a UN conservative estimates so far over 100,000 civilians have lost their lives uh, in the last 18 years. Wow. Uh, and many more if you add the security forces. We only we had about 45,000 security forces dying just in the last four years. So it's uh, it's a tragic that conflicts and events, uh, conflicts and, and wars force people to flee. So I've been telling my story and I've written a book about it. It is that I want people to understand that it was not an easy decision for my mom to make. Uh, when I was at the age 12, that she sent me away alongside my brother, who was a year or so older than me, uh, to leave for Europe. And she told us, no matter how bad it gets, don't come back and, and hold on to each other's hands. Because she knew that the, the, if we were to stay, we perhaps would have joined the Taliban, become fighters, to take revenge for our family members who were killed by U.S. forces. Or right. uh, It was a difficult situation. You know, Taking revenge was an important aspect of our culture. There was no winning. It was about, it would have been you know, uh, more loss of life. So in a way, I'm glad that my mom sent me away, even though she saved me, but she also lost me. So it's, it's a bit complicated. Of but yeah, course. I had to go through about um, 11,000 miles, 10 countries or so uh, before making it to the UK. So I went through a, a very difficult and hard, maybe that's an understatement. I went through a hellish journey 
being in prison in almost every country that I went through, you know, wasn't really treated as a, as a child or even as a human being by the smugglers or the traffickers as well as uh, even more so by the authorities. So, yeah. um, you know, and what is heartbreaking is it's not just happened to me 12 years ago, it's actually happening to people today. Exactly, yeah. I just want to go back because um, I think it's something that often gets overlooked when we see these pictures on the news of, of people um, trying to, to get to safety. Um, you know, your mum having to tell her, her little boys to hold on to each other's hands and actually you did you did get separated, your brother and, and you, didn't you? And uh, I can't even, be, I have a son myself, I can't even begin to imagine just pushing him off and, and saying, don't come back, you know, for your own safety, don't come back. Indeed. That's and what I makes think, me upset. Yeah, sure, please continue, sorry. I was just going to say, no, I think that's something that, um, you know, we get caught up in the political aspect and who should look after who, but... We're, I, you mentioned earlier you were hardly treated like a child, let alone a human being, um, on, in some of the countries and locked up. These are, are children that this is still happening to. And um, I know you're doing, uh, going back to what we said at the very beginning about being glad. It's, I, for me personally, this interview, I'm, I'm glad about all the things that you are doing now because of your experience. And I'm glad I'm alive. I mean, there are other people who wasn't as lucky as me. So indeed, that's the point. When I talk to people, you know, I want people to put themselves in the shoes of refugees. You know, we had to, we are held at these high standards. You know, we had to be like good refugees. We had to be deserving and, and so on. The thing is, when, when mothers have to make this extraordinary journey, like extraordinary decision like my mother had to do, it's not taken lightly. It's the last result. You know, if I had a choice, I would have stayed. And uh, I, I remember I was doing a talk recently in North Yorkshire and a gentleman asked me, he said he was trying to persuade his friends to come to my talk, but um, he didn't want to come uh, because he said, you know, I should have stayed in Afghanistan and fought. And I was like, well, this is what I would love to have done, but I would have been killed in the process. So sometimes people just doesn't realize the, the seriousness of the situation. And, you know, you have to be faced in extraordinary circumstances to do that. And that's why I've been kind of campaigning and advocating for... Uh, refugees to be allowed and to be treated compassionately and kindly and to be welcomed with, with humanity. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't just a case of being able to just simply fight, was it? Because there's that whole allegiance thing, you know, who, whose side do you fight on and how do you go about... Indeed, uh, there, is no, there, is no, there is no good and bad in wars. War is bad completely, you know, there will be more loss of lives. And now you've started a, um, a not-for-profit organisation called My Bright Kite. Tell me a little bit about the work that they're doing. So I was doing all sorts of work around refugee advocacy and campaigning and then realized I needed to do something more practical with young people, uh, with refugees. So I wanted to, my broadcast came about with a colleague of mine, Nola, um, to work on inclusions and empowerments of young refugees. Uh, and uh, so we've been working with people to achieve their uh, full potential and their aspirations. So we have like five youth projects. We still do the, the talks and things, but at the same time, we work directly with young people and families who are affected by, by the conflicts and who are flown to Britain uh, for refuge. Right, right. Tell me a little bit about your experience. I know you, you've already mentioned that you got locked up in most countries that you traveled through. Um, tell me what it was like when you actually arrived here in the UK. How, how, did, um, how did the British public or the British services treat you? 
So I went through about 12, 12 months on the journey, going through back and forth, like being arrested, deported, imprisoned, and so on between like Bulgaria, Turkey, Iran, and then crossing to, to Greece and the Mediterranean where I could have almost lost my life and the boat could have capsized and we would have been killed uh, in the last leg of our journey. But we thankfully survived. And there are 6,000 or so people who didn't survive in the last three years or so. There are 60,000 refugee deaths across um, the world in the last few years, you know, it's, it's just crazy. So I go to the UK, finally, I was relieved, hoping to be reunited with my brother, but it wasn't so simple. It was very um, difficult to actually do that. And uh, so uh, the, the system didn't value me, but the people did. So it took me two years to convince authority over my age dispute that did not believe I was 13 at the time. They didn't even believe I was an Afghan national. So it was really, um, um, really unfortunate that I had to go through this, and um, it took me five years to get a to, to be recognized as a refugee by the Home Office. So, uh, the, getting to the UK was not the end. This was the beginning of an end, or the end of the beginning. So it was another battle, another struggle, perhaps more harder because of the system of disbelief and dehumanization by the the Home Office, and also feeling um, you know unwelcomed and unwanted and treated uh, treated yeah. as a suspect, as a criminal. Uh, and so it was not a nice feeling. No, I can imagine. And, and where did you stay during those five years? What, what, were you able to gain some education or were you just twiddling your thumbs? So I lived in a, in a legal limbo and the bureaucracy was such that it was really, for the first two years until my age was resolved, I was not able to go to school or college because of the, the difficulties with that. Um, I was saying one thing, the Home Office saying was another thing and social service was saying a different thing. So after when that was resolved, I was able to go to school uh, and to actually um, gain an education. So, uh, and then I lived with like social services and like kind of um, hostels or unit for unaccompanied minors. And I lived with other fellow asylum seekers. Uh, it was not a, a pleasant time. It was not the best time of my life actually, but uh, I, I, overcame, I overcame it with the help and support of teachers and mentors and people who, who looked out for me and supported me. But uh, even you know, getting refugee status wasn't really the end. It just the uncertainty continues, and then until recently, when I got my settled status uh, about eleven years later, so I was I haven't been able to travel freely. Uh, uh, I haven't been had the chance to vote, for example. So there is a lot of uh, responsibilities, yet very few rights. Sure, sure. It's interesting you use the words that you haven't been able to work, and I know what you mean is, is sort of in regards to. Um, earning and earning uh, having a, a career and earning the kind of income that maybe you would if you were an average Brit growing up and, and living a life here in the UK but I know you have actually not been twiddling your thumbs because when I look at the bottom of your email I've got my phone here because there was no way I was going to be able to remember everything um crikey me you have been busy you know you're the co-founder of my bright kite which we mentioned earlier patron of the Separated Child Foundation, chairperson of the Afghan youth movement, um, an ambassador for a world at school, um, board of trustees of NOMAD, the nations of migration awakening the disappora, crikey, the, um, justice subcommittee member, youth ambassador, advisor, refugee rights, uh, the list just goes on and gone, on this, and on. This is just a few. This is just a few things I've been doing now. But in the past, I have always preoccupied myself with um, doing whatever. You've been involved with the UK Youth Parliament, with the British Youth Council, with the Children's Society, volunteering, and I won 
you know, many awards, including Francis Diana Award for campaigning, because I've been doing work around child poverty in the UK. I have won, I, I mean, um, my school actually named an award after me for overcoming adversities, which is really humbling. And along the way, I have done whatever I could to give back to society, to learn, to get an education. I've been part of a lot of uh, youth in political interfaith uh, groups. And like, uh, I have been very, very busy um, doing things that I felt like, you know, I want to not just get an education, but actually get involved in the wider community and society. So it's been, it's been great, you know, volunteering, meeting people of different cultures and different faiths. It has made me the person I am. So I think I encourage a lot of, you know, I encourage young people just in generally to be more engaged and involved in politics and, and to have their say, to make sure their voices are heard. And so mm -hmm. it's been a, I've been an, I've been a campaigner for not only refugees and asylum seekers rights, uh, but uh, encouraging young people participation and voice uh, in, in the wider debate uh, in the country. That's amazing. I think the work that you're doing is so important. And for me, I, I'm going to hold my hands in the air and say, I don't know much about your plight. You know, I don't. And having been led, led a very privileged life, I know I'm a very privileged person. It's so hard to um, to even begin to understand what it's like. And, and one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is, you know, what is the biggest it's a difficult question really what is the, the biggest problem that faces um and i don't know whether i'm going to ask whether it faces the children or the the parents you know what's your vision for the future if 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 you could have changed the situation for your mother obviously there would be no war um but how do we get children to safety what's your vision for getting a child from war zone to safety you know, I mean, I wish, of course, there was no wars and conflict, but the fact is there are almost 68 million refugees and displaced people in the world. About 20, 25 million of those displaced people, 25 million are refugees, and about half of those 25 million are children. And yes, it's overwhelming, it's, it's huge, but one in 10 refugees are in Europe, nine of them are in developing countries. The top 10 countries holding refugees are developing countries like Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, Pakistan, Iran, Uganda. Kenya and so on. We need to play our fair share. And I think uh, the best way we could do it is to find legal and safer ways for people to travel. Uh, there's an organization called Safe Passage um, and it's been supported by Lord Dubs and others um, who are campaigning and, and getting refugees unaccompanied minors from Europe who have family members who have come here legally in a civilized way and, and through safe and legal routes. But the government just makes it so difficult. Um, we were supposed to take 3,000 unaccompanied minors from Europe under the Dubs Amendment uh, which Lord Doves was himself a, a refugee. He came in the Kenda transport in the 80s uh, from the Nazi occupation and, and, and wars in, in Germany. So he's been a huge, uh, admirable campaigner and advocate uh, for unaccompanied minors. And the government kind of reluctantly agreed to take in 3,000 children from Europe who had family members here who were vulnerable and then made a U-turn on it after 300 or so. And so the it was a part of 100,000 unaccompanied minors who entered Europe. Um, I was recently in Athens after 11 and a half years. I went back and uh, I was speaking to the deputy mayor of Athens and he was telling me there are about 4,000 unaccompanied minors uh, in the Athens region alone. And half of those, about 2,000 or so, are homeless. And so, you know, of course, we should be doing more in conflict countries, but definitely we should be doing more in Europe. Italy and, and, and um, in Greece are struggling. We shouldn't we shouldn't just wash our hand of responsibility. We ought to play a part. I'm not saying, you know, I wish we could take everybody. We may not be able to take everybody. 
everybody to take somebody. Uh, and the, the government hostile environment policies and the media's rhetorics and the right wing, uh, you know, uh, we see what, what, what recently happened in New Zealand and how the right wing is on the rise, UKIP and Brexit and Trump. It just creates an, uh, a really unwelcoming environment for people who are fleeing violence and, and, and conflict. There are people who were killed in the Christchurch, uh, Christchurch uh, mosque massacre where they were Afghans and Syrians who, who left and flee for their lives and for safety. I don't think they ever thought, you know, they will be gunned down in the most peaceful country in the world. So we definitely have a lot of issues when it comes to racism and discrimination and how we treat the other or how we perceive the other and, and, and the fear that politics puts into us. Mm -hmm. uh, it's troubling and that's why I've been doing whatever I can to, you know, by writing The Lightless Sky, by going out there, trying to get people to, you know, it's not, it doesn't give me pleasure by sharing my story. I don't like to talk about it, but I think it's important because people need to be aware, people need to be educated about the, the, the plights of refugees. Not only unaccompanied minors, the children, but old, or older people also, they need help and they need support and we ought to be, we ought to be a compassionate society. I think I, my experience of tra traveling across Britain, people are very kind and generous. I had two years, I was fostered by a wonderful warm family love, which I needed the most at the time and helped me to integrate and help me achieve well at school. Um, you know, despite English being my fifth language, managed to get 10 GCCs, went on to do my A-levels and then, you know, to graduate from the University of Manchester with a degree in politics and then to do my master's at Coventry recently. All those things I never thought was possible. You know, along the way, I carried the Olympic torch and I've done all sorts of amazing things because, you know, I, I work hard for it. Of course, I was very dedicated and focused. I still I am. But it's just the government doesn't have the right policy in place. I think we need to be allowing young people to get an education, giving them opportunities. And hopefully, you know, my vision is you asked, you know, I hope to go back one day to Afghanistan to play a part in, in, in peace building and to ensure that mothers wouldn't have to send their young children to safety, uh, to the unknown. You know, they, uh, there's a famous poem by Somalian refugee that the sea has to be safer than the, the land to put your children on a boat, like, you know, so, it's very troubling the, world, the way the world is heading, especially the, the irresponsible language used by media and politicians when it comes to refugees and asylum seekers and just migrants in general mm -hmm. and foreigners. And we ought to, it's not the Britain that I knew. I mean, Britain has changed since Brexit and people think they have a green light to insult. They have a mandate to be racist. Really? And so we but need you've to, actually yeah. noticed this difference. Cracky. Indeed, okay. indeed. So the thing is when people, people could debate whatever they debate. I mean, the issues of sovereignty, the, a lot of people who voted Brexit, yes, I'm sure they had good intentions, but majority of them had no idea what the custom union is, what a single market is and whatnot. And then they're mainly voting on, against immigration. I saw a lot of uh, people from Asian backgrounds, people third generation immigrants here in Bolton who voted Brexit because they didn't, want, they didn't like the Europeans. And there were others who voted because they didn't like Brown and Muslims. It, it just, the racism always existed under the, surf, under the surface, but I think Brexit has given, given the racism an opportunity to come out mm -hmm. in, to not be politically correct and, and it's dangerous you know rhetorics causes problems it, you know we have we have right-wing attacks and, and the rise of islamophobia and anti-semitism this is huge issues and the media is not really willing to discuss it and uh, it's not just you know for me it's not just being being a refugee it's about i'm a human being and i ought to be respected and treated with with dignity and 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 i you know and what is important is that good people need to show solidarity and stand up there are far too many people, good people in britain who don't speak up, who are silent. Do you know, I wanted to just um, pick up on a word, uh, and it is a key word for me, I think, really, uh, that you said a little earlier, is fear. I think 
fear is one of the biggest problems um, for, for everybody because it's fear of the unknown, fear of different cultures and um, the way, just the, the ways of being. Um, we all grow up in our own little bubbles, or most of us do, I know I certainly did, and have very little exposure to other cultures and um, and when you when you're unsure of something when something's new it, it can be frightening um, and I think that the media just perpetuates this fear of oh is it you well, you've seen the headlines you know people coming and stealing our jobs telling us what to do on our own country own, own soil and all that kind of thing um, but for me personally I feel that, that there needs to be more um, even with, within you know, each community, more kindness to each other, because each community has its own problems in itself, let alone with other communities and, and mixing up the, um, the different cultures. So I just feel like kindness and humanity and treating each other like human beings and trying to understand that everybody is trying to do their best is, is a, big, a big thing for me. I, what do you think? Of course, indeed, that's the thing. So, you know, the, the strange thing is that people uh, who doesn't have any refugee population in their community are very anti-refugees and anti-migrants. So they're the one who, um, who basically, um, who, uh, who doesn't really uh, understand because they're just like, they're just racist. But um, what we need to do is, yes, showing kindness to us another in, in realizing that people have gone through difficulties, people have gone through hard, hardship and people needs, needs help and support and people needs to, um, People needs to take it easy um, with their with their lives and their experiences. So I would say, um, yeah, it's it's just the idea that they come here, they take our jobs. In fact, for asylum seekers are not allowed to work. They had to live five pounds a day uh, to survive, and they would love to work and to have a dignified life, but they're not given that chance. And so it's really you know unfortunate that people have those perspectives. But again, I don't blame them because they just don't know, and the media doesn't tell them you know what it is. I remember I met. A young boy, I was speaking at a school in, in, uh, in Devon or Somerset, and he came up to me saying, you know, I was ashamed of how I felt about you before I met you. So please, you know, don't blame me, but um, understand that, you know, what I hear from the media and what my parents tells me. So it's not, uh, you know, please don't judge me. And so I, that, that was very brave of him, but people are just being, yeah. um, being kind of put into this fear of the other and the unknown. And you're right. I think that's why we need to challenge the myths and, and, and Say, look, we are we less than one percent of our populations are refugees. We are uh, we are not doing enough. We are the fifth richest country in the world, and uh, not not everyone is coming here. We're not overcrowded, you know. And so we could do a lot more. We are we are twenty third in the world for taking in refugees. Germany in, in in Sweden has done far more than us than we have. So yeah, a lot to think about. A lot to think about there. That I, it gave me goosebumps when you said about the young chap coming and saying to you, you know, apologizing for his previous thoughts. But isn't that, uh, that must have felt good, really good to you. It did, I hugged him, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's wonderful. When people, I mean, people are trained, people love to hate others. And that hatred is from the environment and the surrounding and the upbringing. It's influenced by the media, it's influenced by our society. So it's not, you know, it's easy to learn those things. It's quite difficult to unlearn them. I used to have really, absurd views about the West and people and, and, and all sorts of minorities and religious groups, but I've learned and I've learned 
to not only tolerate but to accept others and i realize we have more in common than our differences and even the differences is not a bad thing we are human beings and if we're all the same it would be boring and me mm-hmm. being here i'm not taking anybody's job and i think britain has to realize that it has a moral responsibility and a legal obligation in the world to to treat people with humanity and kindness and to show as you said you know to treat people with dignity uh, and to be humane towards those who are fleeing conflict in wars and not see them as criminals and suspects and and bunch of liars and bunch of migrants and so on so we need to be i think politician has to come out and say look we need to, what we need to do and why we are doing it and and the thing is the reason there are, for example communities like bolton bolton have the more asylum seekers than the whole of southwest put together and the reason for that is because it's cheap to house people here and the government give contract to contracts to private companies who make money out of people's misery and they the there was a border um, uh, inspector a report recently which said that 80% of accommodation for asylum seekers are not fit for purpose and asylum seekers are not allowed where they want to live there really bad accommodation uh, and sometimes there was a story of how all the doors were painted red so everybody can recognize there were asylum seekers living there so the community tension is already high people can't get places in schools for their children people can't get a doctor appointment people have you know see the deteriorations in in public services they just it's easy to blame it on refugees even even the fact that uh, refugees are are the one not in fact using the services are maybe the one who are uh, supporting the services you know you will find refugees te- as teachers when they given an opportunity they will be the one who are who are playing a, a positive role instead of um, uh, being being in need but at the same time you know if they're part of the country if they pay their taxes they they should be able to use the services but people are just misinformed people people hear things that are not true and i think you know we are living in an alternative fact world hmm. how do you think we can get the the message out there that asylum seekers are essentially exactly that people that have had to that you mentioned earlier that you want to go home you want to see your mother you want to be part of the community and do grassroots education at home how do we now get that information out there so that the the rest of the population in the UK and Europe and and all, all countries really can be more open and embrace the difficulties and help more how, how do you exactly think i think social media is a great platform i think you know the hate that is coming out of it there people need to counter counter that i think people sitting behind the screen they say all sorts of things which they wouldn't say in real life and also media needs to be responsible as well as politicians and just normal human beings i think one of the reason i wrote the lightless sky which was not an easy thing emotionally and mentally but i did it because i want people to see i want people to be empowered and to understand the 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 story behind the the statistics and numbers and the faces behind those as well and i wanted people to really think for themselves uh, and see what they could do so things like you know volunteering for charities befriending mentoring and just you know fostering or hosting refugees in your homes and just you know i've been trying to encourage people just to meet refugees go for go with them for a coffee for for tea or invite refugees into your homes they're just normal people and you will find kindness uh, and and love and and hopes in them um you know they have seen enough violence and we shouldn't be treating them as as criminals and so it's not easy to get the message out there and that's why we all we need people to to do their best and to do their part i mean it's amazing that there are a lot of organizations and charities who are doing great work the unhcr uh, for example in the uk we have city of sanctuary refugee action and so there are a bunch of uh, local refugee welcome groups and networks who does brilliant work in in welcoming people but also creating an environment of welcome for people so and that's why i've been i've been a small part of the, the debate and discussion and and traveling across the uk the states and in europe and 
and I'm glad the book's published into eight language, eight countries and seven languages. And so I think, you know, we do what we can uh, to try to change people's perceptions or to challenge it, but also to encourage them to think uh, for themselves, not to just believe everything they hear in the media. Mm. So we, are not the world, we are not the world's capital for asylum seekers. There was a recent bizarre, bizarre statement by some right-wing politician. Sorry, yeah. Oh, really? Crikey. Mm. Um, I was going to say, as a, an average family living in the UK, how would you go, how would I go about, I don't know, uh, uh, looking after a refugee or, you know, it's difficult because of course we, it don't, is. we don't hear about how to do our bit. We hear the fear factor. So Sure, it, sure. But, but thankfully, there's so, that's a good point. There, there are a lot of organizations like Amnesty International. There's an organization called Home for Refugees, Refugee Homes, who matches people with, uh, with refugees and uh, yeah. who basically helps... Um, much people who need houses in certain area with people. So it's, there are so many ways when people want to look for it, they can certainly find, find it. But of course, because you said, we, we don't really hear the positive side of what we should be doing, what we could do in the positive stories. We always focus on the negatives. Mm -hmm. and, and that's very unfortunate. So, you know, um, and that's why I, I hope people get to read my book and get to understand the, the, the journeys, the, the reasons of me fleeing and why other refugees leave and what happens when we get here. You know, I'm definitely really grateful for the support and help of just individuals and people uh, because the system wasn't being very nice and kind to me and was very dehumanizing and demoralizing. So you're right. I think it's, it's about, you know, finding those local uh, community welcome groups in our local areas. And, and look, like, for example, City of Sanctuary have a local branch in every major towns and cities and as well as most areas will have a refugee welcome support or network uh, in the area who meets and, and, and help and support refugees with language classes. I mean, anything like showing a refugee around and helping them with the document appointment or helping them with their the immigration state um, applications. Or, or, there's so many things we could do which will make this person's life. This, this, you know, I wouldn't be where I am without the help and support and kindness of individuals and people who just, who just looked out for me and, and supported me. So we shouldn't feel overwhelmed. We shouldn't feel hopeless and helpless. There are things we could do. And I think we should just get involved and be part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really important message. Like you say, there are good people out there, but they're not engaged in the conversation yet. They don't actually realize what's needed to be done. There's sort of that level of um, unconsciousness. That's my issue. I mean, there's so many great people across Britain. Yeah. Yeah, they don't actually, you know, talk to the council. They don't do anything really other than just say, oh, we should be doing something, just a silenced majority. Sure, sure. And we live in a culture where we just click like on a Facebook post and think that we've done our bit, when actually it needs to be a little bit more involved than that. Yeah. Certainly. I think, yeah, I think fundraising, financial contribution to local charities, giving time, volunteering, writing to MPs, going on demonstrations, and, and just finding out and educating ourselves, reading about those issues, reading about the people's stories, and, and finding out from the NHCR, from the Human Rights Watch and other organizations, Amnesty International, who there are a lot of facts and figures which people don't sometimes like. People just like to, you know, play the emotional card. And also the government needs to have uh, more help and support for local communities, you know, for the communities who need, um, who, who are hosting refugees. They need to be, they're also struggling. There are issues, you know. So there needs to be a more community cohesion uh, aspect of it. Uh, and there needs to be a collab collaborative uh, work with the community as well as with refugees. Yeah. 
I'm um, I'm a big fan of volunteering. I think that actually sometimes people mistake volunteering as oh they've got to give up their time and they don't realise that actually by by volunteering you gain a lot more than you give. It's not really just about giving away your time. You actually benefit as a human being because the the, the feel good factor you get um, and not only just the feel good factor but the self reflection when you help people that are uh, maybe not not as well off as you are. It, it that's, a, really that's a great point you know completely agree so i was when i was in athens i met a lot of young brits who were volunteering in the camps i met a wonderful girl Brit, <coughs> Brittany. she was telling me she'd been there all year around she only comes back uh, a while just once in a while to meet her family here and when i was in cali there were a lot of british volunteers used to come and whenever i've been able to visit back to the jungle to cali and since 2013 14 i've seen so many teachers doctors individuals um professional non-professionals Brits, young and old, going in volunteering. You know, there are people right now working in the refugee kitchen in Cali, providing 2,000, 3,000 hot meals every day to refugees. There are people working in the warehouses, providing refugees with boots and, and, and blankets and warm clothes. And so it's amazing. And there are volunteers working with like children and people in, in, in Paris and as well as in, in Bosnia, as well as other Eastern European countries, the Balkan route where people are stuck there in Macedonia and, and Serbia helping them so it's really wonderful even in the uk there are a lot of there are a lot of need for like you know befriending and mentoring in english language classes and just volunteering helping local charities to to get the message out there mm -hmm. so important and i think you know reflecting right the way back to the beginning where you said obviously you weren't glad of what happened to you no one is glad that children are separated from their mothers and sent across countries and seas to uh, to safety that and most of the stories no one's glad uh, of what's happened but i can definitely say that i'm very glad of all the hard work that you're putting into trying to save other people from having to go through what you've been through and it's only by having these conversations and raising awareness so that more people are thinking about how to improve the situation that we can try and get on top of this so Gowali, thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Is there any sort of last thing that you want to say, any message you want to finish on or um, before we round well, up? Well, pleasure. Thank you. thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to share a few thoughts with you. I just encourage people to, to read The Lightless Sky. There's the whole story in there. And I want people to you know, take action, not to sit on the sidelines, not be a bystander. If you mm -hmm. see racism, challenge it. Stand for, for the victims. and, and uh, if you have family members, friends who have those uh, unhelpful and, and uh, discriminatory racist views, call them out. And so, you know, we all have the capacity and capabilities and ability to touch people's lives. Let's do it the right way. Let's, let's touch people's lives. Let's live a legacy and let's be a, a positive, uh, remember positively by people. And, you know, we have this life and let's make the most of it. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It's been Pleasure. Thanks great for having me. You. I think we could have talked for ages about lots of different offshoots from, from your story. So thank you very much. What more can I say? We're all human and we should all treat each other with kindness and respect. If this story resonated with you, please do like, share and pass it on. And as always, the conversation continues over on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So please do drop by and leave a comment. I'll look forward to chatting with you there. With so much love, you've been listening to Galwali Pasale. 
Pollyanna and the Be Glad Movement.